Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this on Friday, April 24th. So much housekeeping to do, Drew. So much housekeeping. I have to start. Now, when you were working at Disney, Doc McStuffins was a thing, right? Yeah, it was a thing, but they were pivoting more towards uh, Elena. Elena mm-hmm. was a big priority when I was there. Okay. Um, well, I, the reason I bring up Doc McStuffins is just this past weekend, on, on Saturday, April 18th, that Peabody Award-winning program basically ended its run on Disney Junior. Oh, God. Uh, Jim, it, don't tell me. Did Doc McStuffins get coronavirus? <laughs> is well, that what happened? <laughs> it's, see, now, it's interesting you bring that up because evidently they stopped recording episodes back in April of 2018. And you have to think that somebody at Disney right now is like, oh, dang, if we just, you know, if that show were still in production, we could do something. Because just this Saturday on CNN, they're doing a a co-production between CNN and Sesame Workshop. They're doing what they're calling the ABCs of (laughs) COVID-19. What's interesting is it's going to be, it's a 90-minute long thing. With their chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, and you know, network anchor Aaron Hill, no relation, but also Big Bird, Elmo, Grover, and Abby Kadabi. But that's the beauty of, of working with puppets, that you can throw together this sort of broadcast almost instantaneously, whereas with animation, you need so much more lead time. Though, speaking of the Muppets, do you want to share what you just saw come through about Roku? Yeah, uh, so if you have a Roku device, this past Thursday, Mm. the Roku channel was introduced, which I assume is just something you get if you have a Roku. Uh, Mm. I have not looked into this entirely yet, but um, there was this report on Animation Magazine that says hundreds of hours of Jim Henson content hits Roku. So that's everything from the Wubulous World of Dr. Seuss Season 1 to the Mother Goose stories to the Animal Show, which was a really important thing that Jim worked on before he died. Mm-hmm. Uh, and more esoteric, fun stuff like uh, the Ghosts of Fafner Hall, which I don't know, Jim, if you ever saw that, but it was it was really cute. It was kind of a... A musical well, it was about show, music, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's it exactly. Yeah, and, and the design, um, the designs were very much that like late eighties, early nineties, mm-hmm. like creature shop look. They look more plastic than sort of mm-hmm. felt, but I, I loved it. I don't know how you felt about it. Look, you know, I was a big supporter of whatever Henson did, and as soon as we finished recording today, I'm, I'm headed over to Roku to check to see. I mean, I, I have my own favorites. I mean, I want to go down to the pile and see if they have. The Muppet Musicians of Bremen or The Frog Prince or that's But again, you know, I, I think some of this stuff, anything that featured the classic Muppet characters probably wound up over at Disney. Yes, they say it's mostly things from Henson Independent Properties, a okay. third-party distribution label. Um, okay. But did you also see the Elmo talk show trailer? Yeah, that's HBO Max, yes, right? Yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> I get almost busier than I am these days. That's <laughs> just amazing. We were just talking about animation lead time and you know, the fact that it takes so long to turn animation around. Well, well uh, technically, yes. I mean, if you think about though, what South Park has managed to do, Trey Parker and Matt Stone. I mean, I've, I've always been kind of stunned. How quickly, if something happens in the news, how it will show up on a, a you know an episode of South Park, which, by the way, this year 
is the the twenty fourth season. Downside is for those of us who'd love to see what Cartman has to say about COVID nineteen. They typically don't start running new episodes till September. There, boss, right? Right. Or, right. Okay. So, yeah. well, have you ever huh? seen the documentary Six Days to Air about how they make the shows so quickly? No. Oh, you no, should look it up. I, I think it's on some of the streaming platforms. It's really fascinating. So okay. if you want to know how down to the wire this stuff is, watch that documentary. It's really, really great. Killer. Okay. So, all right. So what else we got for news? Well, I mean, obviously we, we have Scoob, uh, which is now going the premium on-demand route. Is that the name now? Premium on-demand? Yeah. This what they, a theater at home is, a, is mm-hmm. another phrase that's being used on some of the uh, channels. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Scoob is coming home, Jim. You ready for it? Well, you know, again, I remember how enthusiastic you were about this movie. So I'm I'm definitely going out of my way on May 15th to check this out. Though, did you notice the price point this one introduced that? You know, that, yes. what is it? Okay, so it's $19.99 to rent it for 48 hours. But if you want to buy in the home, that's another term I'm learning this week. Uh, that's $24.99. So I have to say if you know, Warner Brothers felt comfortable with pricing the rental version of Scoob at $19.99, I guess that answers the question about you know how people were going to react to Trolls World Tour being rentable for 48 hours for 1999. Yeah. Oh, I, I so. wish that I wish that trolls would have had the $25 option for to buy though. It seems yeah. it seems silly, but yeah. you know. But as long as we're talking about Warner Brothers, what do you make of this Lego news? Or or, or you know, I'm sorry. Can you explain what just happened? Yes, the rights to the Lego films went to Universal. So, yeah, I mean, you did a great job in our our show notes here breaking down just how much money these Mm -hmm. movies were losing in the last few Mm -hmm. movies. I mean, the first one was a huge hit, and then they kind of steadily went down. I mean, Lego Movie 2, which came out last year, was just a certifiable bomb. If you want to go through these numbers, Jim, just to... I mean, the problem was, I guess, the first one was made for $60 million and made like $468 million worldwide. And if we jump to the Lego Movie 2, the second part, which was released in February of 2019, that cost half as much, it came in, or more than half as much. It came in at $99 million. And this is the worldwide gross. It only made $192 million. It made two-fifths of what the original film did. And, you know, the weird part of it is, if this isn't really a surprise movie web broke the story, I want to say, back in December, talking about, you know, the the contract was up with Warners and that Lego was looking for a new home uh, and it looked like it was going to be universal. And, and there'd also been, you know, the handwriting on the wall. There were the, the projects that got canceled, like uh, the Billion Brick Race, which... Uh, you were mentioning started off with with what Drew Pierce is yeah the director? Drew Pierce was going to direct it. Um, he mm-hmm. shared some concept art not that long ago from it, which was mm-hmm. really cool. Um, and then it went over to Jorge Gutierrez who did Book of Life. I mean, you know the problem is you hear about these things and it's like it was going to be a send up of Cannonball Run and Gumball Rally, and it's like oh oh that sounds like it would have been a lot of fun. Yeah, um, that sounded that was the one I was the most excited about and the one but, <laughs> that had the least traction. It seemed like. 
Mm, and as we were pre-gaming today, show you were mentioning that you also heard something else was in the works for Lego at Warner's. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I had heard that that they were looking at a number of Warner Brothers properties to Legofy, mm. including Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Um, it, so to me, that seems like what that's what Universal is going to do. Especially from mm-hmm. that press release, they mentioned Jurassic Park a million times. Mm-hmm. So it feels like they will they will in the same way that Warner Brothers sort of exploited its back catalog by having Voldemort and characters mm-hmm. like that. That Universal is going to do that for mm-hmm. their movies. So you know, you look at Fast and Furious and the famous monsters, and mm-hmm. there's a lot. There's a deep bench there to Lego to turn into Legos. No. Definitely, though. I I think you had mentioned, though, that should this go forward at, at Universal and they start to make the movies that you're hoping that, you know, the production company that did all of the great work on the Lego movies for, for Warner stays on board, right? Yeah, or? I mean, it's going to Universal, which has Illumination and DreamWorks. So my question is, will Animal Logic stick around to do the animation? Mm. Because it's just... That that was such a key part to those movies' successes. And the other question I have, because of where their overall deal is, is will Lord and Miller oversee these new movies as well? Um, yeah. So, yeah, a lot of questions, Jim. A lot of questions. From my side of the fence, I, I hate to say this, but given what's going on over at Disney, depending on how you do your math, you know, you have... Walt Disney Animation Studios, you have Pixar Animation Studios, you got Blue Sky, and and again, I know, you don't believe this movie is ever coming out, but we've got the Bob's Burgers movie, April of 2021, folks, mark the calendar, and that's from 20th Century Animation and Bento Box Entertainment. But, you know, face it, Disney hasn't necessarily been doing the greatest job. I mean this in the kindest possible way, because face it, Everything about the industry is broken at this point, whether it's the distribution model or or how we do publicity and marketing and that sort of thing. But, you know, Spies in Disguise came out on Blu-ray and DVD back on March 10th. Um, I had no, I had no idea. <laughs> I had no idea, Jim. See, this is what I mean. And we, and we do an animation <laughs> news podcast and we somehow missed that. Um, though, to be fair, that that was also the week that Disney announced it was closing Disneyland and Walt Disney World. And it was the first sort of tidal wave of the big closures. But honestly, you know, Spice and Disguise hit store shelves that week and nobody knew. My worry is given how Disney is struggling to properly promote three animation suitors, the fact that here's Lego coming through the door and it's it's going to have to do the exact same thing with DreamWorks Animation and Illumination Entertainment. It's going to have to fight for the best distribution or the best release dates. And Yeah, I know, agree. Yeah. So, I don't know. I want this to work largely because... You know, I like the Lego movies. You know, they're genuinely charming. In fact, you know, if I, I honestly had to pick a favorite out of the bunch, I'd probably go with the Lego Batman movie. I, you know, I, I think it's just as ambitious of, as, you know, the original Lego movie and Lego Movie 2. Like, I love that the craze take on Batman. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great movie. I'm working on the best superhero movies since 2000. And Lego Batman has a place on that list. Oh, so, yes. That, that's great to hear. 
Okay. Well, tell you what, folks, we've been talking a little bit about Warner Brothers. When we get back, we're going to talk about uh, perhaps the most famous Warner Brothers animation characters, a uh, certain Oscar-winning rep. Okay, we're back. Oh, uh, before we, we, we get into the Looney Tunes stuff, you wanted me to bring up Little Demon, which just got announced yesterday, right? Yeah, it sounds really cool. It's it's for FX. It will all be on Hulu after that because, you know, <laughs> FX on Hulu, Jim. It's very, it's big. It's big. There you go. Um, there you go. But yeah, I just got a green light from FX and Dan Harmon, who produces mm-hmm. Rick and Morty, is producing it. And this is the log line. Mm-hmm. 13 years after being impregnated by the devil, played by Danny DeVito, a reluctant mother, played by Aubrey Plaza, and her antichrist daughter, Lucy DeVito, his his real daughter, att- yeah. attempt to live an ordinary life in Delaware, but are constantly thwarted by monstrous forces, including Satan, who yearns for custody of his daughter's soul. Now, that sounds fun, does it not? <laughs> Well, you know, look, they kind of had me when they said Danny DeVito. I've always been a big fan of his work as Phil in in Disney's Hercules from 1997. And he's sort of the only really good thing in Space Jam from 96. I still can't believe they're doing a sequel. Did we talk about the Space Jam sequel footage that leaked that had, like, the mask and the Joker and Voldemort in it? No. <laughs> yeah. It was it wow. was apparently at some party that LeBron had and he showed mm. a sizzle for it and it had all these crazy characters from the Warner Brothers library. Wow. Yeah, okay. and I don't I can't I, I have not gotten a handle on what the storyline is exactly. Mm-hmm. But yeah, a- apparently there there will be more than just the monsters in this one, Jim. Wow. Okay. Okay. All right. I am intrigued again. I still don't necessarily believe there was, you know, there was so many unanswered questions from Space Jam. Well, the other thing is that Danny DeVito is the voice of a dog in a new Disney movie called The One and Only Ivan, which I'm not sure where that is on the schedule. That's the one with Angelina Jolie and Sam Rockwell about a circus elephant. Um he, he keeps doing voices, Jim, is all I've, I've got to say about Danny oh, DeVito. Okay. All right. Well, got to check out Little Demon and now Ivan, the one and only Ivan. The one and only Ivan. And Jim, if you can watch that Space Jam footage and decode what is going on, please let okay. me know. Okay. <laughs> get right on that. But but anyway, um, okay. So we were talking about the Looney Tunes. And uh, so did you see the trailer for the HBO Max thing this week? Yeah, it looks great. Great. I am all I, I'm all in on HBO Max, Jim, especially mm-hmm. because so much of their branding is catering to animation fans, you know, mm-hmm. between South Park and Adventure Time and now this new Looney Tunes. If, if I have one concern about HBO Max, well, actually two. Um, first of all, it's getting to the party that the streaming service party thing fairly late. I mean, don't get me wrong. Peacock Live, the beta version has already launched for some Comcast customers, and the official version, what, starts in July or thereabouts? Yeah. Uh, okay. But uh, my concern is if you look at the price point, and again, we were just talking about how. Nineteen ninety nine for forty eight hours of Trolls World Tour or Scoob, but here's the thing: HBO Max's introductory price is fourteen ninety nine a month. And think about 
Netflix basic plan goes for eight ninety nine. Disney Plus, if you don't do the whole ESPN thing, and oh boy, that would be a great investment now, Drew, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, you know, uh, that's what six ninety nine. And Peacock Live, if you go with the commercials version, is four ninety nine a month. I mean. I think there's a number of people, and don't get me wrong, you're right. They've got a great, deep animation-based bench, you know, with, with Adventure Time and South Park and, and these new Looney Tunes shorts. You know, especially now in this economy, you know, on the heels of how many people are out of work with the pandemic, this is a tough time to do, and it's only fourteen ninety nine a month. It's like, hmm. Yeah, you know, well, I think what my guess is is that if you have HBO as part of your cable package, you're going to mm-hmm. get it for free. Okay. That's okay. that's my that's the hunch I've got, Jim. Because I because right. already if you have AT and T based cable, you're getting it for free. But I think that nobody is going to want to say yes. You have to pay fourteen ninety nine for this thing because all you're going to do is just unhook HBO from your cable oh. provide. You know what I mean? Interesting point. Yeah. Okay. All right, so to double back to the new Looney Tunes stuff. So, okay, so June of 2018, that we found out this was in the works. And, you know, and remember at that point, they, you know, the big hook for it was a thousand minutes of new Looney Tunes, yep. but it was going to be across all sorts of different platforms and headed in all sorts of different directions. And then last June at Annecy, we got to see the first short, Dynamite Dance, which was done to the Dance of the Hours. And oh, by the way, <laughs> the, the theme of the show today, folks, is apologizing. First, we didn't tell you about uh, Spies in Disguise hitting <laughs> store shelves back on March 10th. And now, when we sh- clearly should have talked about this on the last show, we, we neglected to mention that on April 7th, they announced that the Annexy, you know, this international animation festival, is, is not going to be held this year. It was supposed to... Uh, June 15th to the 20th. <sighs> you know, we remember the talk about Comic-Con, but not this. Listen, Jim, until they invite us, I don't care. Okay? <laughs> oh, I don't oh, They okay. can be canceled forever <laughs> until they actually invite us. So, yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, all right. Special note to our fans in France, please. You know, just... <laughs> <laughs> Drew wants an invite. He's being subtle. Okay. All right. So anyway, it's October of last year. We find out that the Looney Tunes shorts are, are going to be at a featured attraction over at HBO Max. Um, interesting. They don't say anything about the thousand minutes, but we do find out that this Looney Tunes reboot is going to consist of 80 11-minute long episodes featuring marquee Looney Tune characters and gag-driven shorts that include classic storylines adapted for present-day audiences. You know, what's kind of funny is that, again, the internet is the home of, you know, the, the crank. And so, you know, I looked at the trailer and it's like, this looks great. But if you go around the internet, there are, there are people complaining. It's like, oh, Bugs Bunny is using an iPhone or he's down in his hole and he's got a flat screen television and he's making jokes about streaming services. And it's sort of like, really, you're going to complain about that. Have we forgotten about Lunatics Unleashed? Uh, I'm going to speak for everyone, Jim, and say, yes, we have. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this is 2005 to 2007. Had you... Started working as entertainment writer back then, or uh, no? Well, I started around 2007, so yeah. No, this okay. was before my time. Thank God. Okay, yeah, because it's it is kind of a fascinating story. 
as I understand it, as folks at Warner Brothers Television Animation have explained it to me, they had had a success, a, a big success, in uh, 1999 uh, with Batman Beyond. You know, the whole notion of moving Batman into the future, giving us a, an elderly Bruce Wayne and, you know, a new young uh, Terry McGinnis, I want to say, was the name of the yes. character. Yep. I mean, it had a great look. And the, the thing is, the Batman fans embraced it immediately. And so the thinking was like, wow, okay. You know, we should try to do this with some other characters in the Warner Brothers library. And so eventually they decided to make a run at the Looney Tunes. And, <laughs> but here's the thing. Have you actually heard how the show is, was described back in the day? It was called a post-apocalyptic action comedy adventure that jumps 700 years into the future, introduces us to the superheroic descendants of the Looney Tunes gang. You know, and then when you get into the specific, it's set off in the far-off year of 2772. Uh, we're on the city planet Acmetropolis, which gets knocked off of its axis by a meteor strike, but the upside of the meteor strike is it unleashes supernatural energies, which then give certain individuals special abilities and strengths. So among the people who get affected are Ace Bunny, who is the a descendant of Bugs Bunny, uh, who's evidently working as a stunt rabbit in movies when he gets transformed. We have Danger Duck, who was a descendant of Daffy, who was employed as a pool boy before you know he got his superhero abilities. Uh, we have Techni Coyote, descendant of Wiley Coyote, a college student at Acme Institute, and he's the inventor of the group. He makes all of the the gadgets and all that. Um, Anyway, I, again, Drew, I can just sense the enthusiasm pouring off of you. Here. Well, well, yeah, I mean, but what was also weird was like Marvin the Martian would show up and he would just be the same Marvin the Martian. Well, that actually, I think that's season two. Okay. Like, you know, because, well, first of all, the show's supposed to start September 2005. So they release a trailer in June of 2005, heralding the show that's coming to the kids WB in the fall. And it was, you know, just, and the world stood up as one and said, do not want. Uh, it, <laughs> yeah. it was, it was kind of start. I mean, certainly the folks at Warner's were startled because of like, well, wait a minute. It's, I mean, really? You, you've just seen the trailer. And it's like, no, don't want it. And they were petitions and, you know, lots of negative press. But but here's the problem. As happens typically with animated series, that Warner's had ordered 26 episodes, which were going to then be split into two 13-episode seasons. And basically, the first season worth of shows were done. They were overseas being animated, painted, and they were going to be on their way back and, you know, on the air for the fall of 2005. So there was an opportunity to go in and tweak season two so that as you mentioned you know marvin the martian shows up the, those shows were deliberate effort you know they changed the tone they tweaked the look they tried to make them more in the spirit of the original looney tunes but it was all wasted effort when the show debuted in uh, again september of 2005 people watched and god it's just as bad as i thought it was going to be they didn't come back in September of 2006 to check out the fixed shows. 
you know, and in fact, you know, what was kind of interesting, this was also during the period where Warner's, uh, the WB and, and UPN basically got swallowed by the CW. Uh, right, and so, right. so this is during that time where it's just sort of like, there's a lot of, okay, we have to burn through these shows that we inherited as we're getting our brand new network up off the ground. So, um, yeah, they ran the shows, but by May of 2007, it's just like, okay, we're done. Just these go back into the vault and, or more to the point, they become guitar picks. In fact, that's the most interesting thing right now. You know, if you talk with anybody about the history of the Looney Tunes characters, they delicately step over or around uh, Looney Tunes Unleashed. It's, right. Uh, you know. So what, what did you think of the footage of the new show, though? Or whatever it is, the, the HBO Max shorts. Well, again, I honestly liked what I saw. You know, okay. in fact, as far back as uh, Dynamite Dance last year, I loved the fact that they were making an effort to do the 40s-style animation. In fact, what's kind of interesting is to watch this trailer starts off with a bit where uh, Bugs is arm wrestling with Yosemite Sam. And, it, and at one point, they put a shadow on Yosemite Sam's nose. And it's one of these things where it's like, wow, that sort of detail for a throwaway gag. It's just sort of like, this is really cool. Um, now, mind you, what's kind of interesting is if you drill down into the production team of this, it's the Uncle Grandpa people who, you know, were doing a lot of work on this. Okay. Uncle Grandpa had some wonderful off-the-wall stuff. So it's I like- agree. It's just so one of these things where it's like, okay, I love the look and I'm intrigued by it's it's those folks who are doing this. So let's see. Let's let's give it a shot. But again, you know, I mean let's be honest honest here, Drew. You and I both know that what happened with Lunatics Unleashed happens all the time in animation. You you get really talented people who wanna to try to do something unique, something different. And, you know, totally you know, go into something with entirely good intentions, and it winds up, you know, just blowing up in their face. Which brings me to the story that Josh Gad shared last night on Twitter. By the way, did you get a chance to see that? Yet? I did. Or, I watched it uh, this morning. Yeah. Well, uh, to explain, folks, Josh has been doing this really great thing, particularly for parents who, you know, have small kids at home and are trying to find new ways to entertain them. And what Josh has been doing is, I want to say every weeknight has been reading a, a different children's story. And then, you know, after that wraps, he, he sort of chats to the parents for a few minutes. And last night, what he did is he talked about the early, early version of Frozen. And back when it wasn't even called Frozen, it was what? Uh, Anna and the Snow Queen, right? Right. Yeah. And this was, if, if I'm remembering the story correctly, it was the first table read for the project. And this was back when it wasn't Bobby and Kirsten Anderson Lopez doing the music. It was actually Alan Menken. Uh, in fact, as I understand it, a lot of the songs for this version of it were originally written for a stage show for Tokyo Disneyland. Yes. Oh. That is, yeah. That is what I've heard oh. as well. But what's interesting is that you know, this is the first time Josh has really gone on the record and into specifics 
about who was there with him at the table read. And so what? Instead of uh, Kirsten Bell as Anna, it was Jennifer Goodwin, right? Um, yeah. From uh, Zootopia. And Once Upon a Time, we had Jason Biggs in the, I think, I'm not sure the character was called Hans at this point, but the gentleman who did the, the American Pie movies. And then for the Snow Queen, it was Megan Mullally from Will and Grace, who, by the way, I guess just ended the revival version the other night. But as it's always been explained to me, Megan was there as a placeholder because the person that Disney really wanted for the, the Snow Queen was Bette Midler. Um, oh, that's, that makes sense. And this was the version of Anna and the Snow Queen. The Snow Queen's the villain, straight-up villain of the film. And uh, I think we talked at length on another fine-tuning about how she's really a show queen in fact, there's that great piece of concept art where she's getting dressed and she throws out her arms and all of these snow white ermines run at her and bite onto her clothes. And she's suddenly wearing this beautiful fur coat that's made out of live ermine. <laughs> but, but again, uh, in this version, Olaf is her henchman, right? And the running gag of this version of the movie was that Olaf with his carrot nose, his superpower was he could smell people coming from far away. So he could always warn the snow queen like, Oh, here comes Anna, you know? So anyway, they do the table read. It doesn't go great. Uh, so the project gets tabled and Josh goes off and does book of moment on Broadway which raises his profile as a performer, which then leads to him being cast as one of the title characters in DreamWorks animation, Me and My Shadow. And you've seen some of the, the animation for this out there online, right? Yeah, this was supposed to be a 2D, 3D hybrid where the characters were 3D and the shadow was 2D. And it, mm -hmm. it, it's really fascinating. I think the last movement on it was that Edgar Wright was going to take it over. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. A, a oh, few yeah. years ago, yeah. yeah. But this thing has been, like, perpetually in development for decades, it feels like. Okay, well, as Josh was talking about this project last night, I've always assumed he was the voice of the shadow, but it turns out, I guess, he was the me. He was the voice of the, the human who, you know, suddenly has to deal with his shadow becoming independent. Anyway, long story short, he's working on that project, and he gets a call from Disney, and it's like, hey, Frozen is back on. And not only that, but Bobby and Kristen Anderson Lopez are now, Alan Megan's out, uh, the Lopez's are doing the score for the film, and they have expressly told us that they want you to come back and voice Olaf. But again, Josh has signed a contract with DreamWorks, and then you know, he's playing the title character in this, this upcoming animated feature. But he really wants to help out his friends, so he contacts Jeffrey Katzenberg, the, the, the head of the studio, and explains the situation, and you know he goes, "Look, Olaf is a really small part, and and if you think about it, Olaf, really is a small part. He doesn't come into the movie till like halfway through. I mean, I, I think over time the part grew as Josh was doing voice work for it, but but Katzenberg listens to to Josh and he likes Josh. He says, "Okay, all right, I would be willing to entertain this idea." That, you know, you can voice Olaf and you can still voice that, you know, one of the title characters in Me and My Shadow. 
but here's he sets down conditions. You know, uh, first and foremost, that Disney can't use your name in any of the publicity or the marketing materials for this movie. And it's like, well, you know, I'm a small supporting character. I didn't think that was going to happen anyway. And then Gad would not be allowed to do any interviews in support of this film. And this was supposedly, at least at that moment in time, because uh, Frozen and Me and My Shadow were originally supposed to be out in theaters within like two weeks of one another, which makes me think about the Robin Williams thing in, in 92, where, what was it, Aladdin came out in... November, and then in December of 1992, that's when Barry Levinson's Toys arrived in theaters, and that starred Robin Williams. And Robin kind of made that also, you know, understanding, like, look, I'll do the genie, I'll do the voice of the genie, but he put restrictions in place to the effect of, you know, you can't use my name to promote the film, and, you know, I think we, we, we've talked about this, Drew, about yes. the whole... But what Josh Gad said, though, that was interesting was that they were going to make a sort of guessing game out of who Olaf was, that that was going to be built into the marketing is like, who is it? Which I think is very Disney to me. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, to to get back to uh, to Robin Williams, and again, Robin, because toys tanked when it came out in the theaters and, and Aladdin for a time was, was Disney's highest grossing animated film ever. I mean, you know, this was back in the day when, Oh my God, an animated features made over $200 million in domestic release. That has never happened before. And these days it's like, what? You didn't make a billion failure anyway. So, you know, Robin really felt that Jeffrey had let him down or gone back on his word and, he didn't actually come back to work for Disney till after Katzenberg left Disney in, I want to say, what was it, the, the summer of, of 94? Yeah. But here's the thing. We've always been told that you know one of the main reasons that Michael Eisner just basically sort of forced Jeffrey to resign is that Jeffrey was campaigning very, very hard for Frank Wells' job, because remember, you know, in the, in the spring of 1994, Frank Wells had been killed in that, that tragic helicopter accident. And Eisner supposedly felt it was unseemly that Katzenberg was, was chomping at the bit to, to get Frank's old gig. But another story has come up about this, and another possible explanation as to why Eisner was kind of in the mindset to let uh, Katzenberg go to, to sort of kick him out the door at Disney. And supposedly Michael Eisner was furious with Jeffrey from earlier that year, earlier in 1994, because Katzenberg was going to open a deep sea themed restaurant in partnership with, with Steven Spielberg called Dive. And the interesting thing is that Katzenberg had reportedly cleared the venture in advance with Frank Wells, who had no objection to it. But but the interesting thing is that Eisner felt it was a blatant conflict with Disney because they, in turn, were trying to get their own themed restaurants up and running. This would have been, what, Mickey's Kitchen, Drew? Yes, yeah, which we will go into detail on a, on another episode about. But, yeah, I, mm-hmm. never, I never got to go, but I was fascinated mm-hmm. with the concept. But, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. this was the themed restaurant boom, time, Mm -hmm. I would say, right? 
Oh, God, yeah. Well, and that's the interesting thing, is it was the success of Planet Hollywood and the Hard Rock that made Spielberg and Katzenberg, you know, it's like, we should be in that business. We should get in that space. And the thing I think that made Eisner crazy was that, you know, Katzenberg, you know, was actually able to get Dive going with Spielberg. They they had one in, what, Century City yep. in Los Angeles, and they had one in Las Vegas, and they built one in Barcelona. And meanwhile, Disney, I think, did two prototype versions of Mickey's Kitchen and eventually walked away from it. There's a number of issues there. You know, and it, as Eisner expressed it, in fact, this is a quote from uh, James Stewart, the author of Disney War. It's like, my greatest concern about Jeffrey is it has to do with the way he conducts himself and to the degree he focuses on his own agenda. Anyway, another reason Drew and I are sharing this story today is we now want to talk about our new project, Sorry You Missed It, and which really uh, comes out of one day Drew was telling me about... Now, it, it, you went to the dive in Las Vegas, right? I did, yes. On the same mm-hmm. the same trip that I went to MGM Adventures and experienced all three themed parts of the Luxor experience as well. Yeah, and see see this is the thing, folks. There are so many of these sorts of ambitious attractions, whether they're themed restaurants or, or for example, aren't you also doing some research right now on the Star Trek experience for Vegas? I am, yes. I'm doing that for for StarTrek.com. And Mm. uh, yeah, it's it's wild. Um, Yeah. Yeah, there was so much stuff going on then. And again, Drew and I have a genuine love of not only the world of themed entertainment, but the stuff that crashes and burns and why it crashes and burns. So what we're developing with Sorry You Missed It is is a show that will take you to these places. We'll give you, you know, the history of their development. And then, you know, we'll do things like, again, Drew actually ate at the, the Las Vegas dive. And okay, was it as loud as they, they say it was? Or it, I mean, it was insanely loud. <laughs> it was crazy <laughs> loud. Yeah. Because what? The gimmick of the restaurant was every 45 minutes, it would pretend to submerge and, and travel to some new spot, right? Yes. And there were there were accompanying graphics and... Um, yeah, it, it was it was a lot, Jim. It was a lot. I, I don't know how you would work there. Let's just put it well, that way. Well, no, see, that's the thing. The, the, the klaxon horns would sound and the lights would flash and it's and it's made entirely out of metal. You know, so it, everything echoes. And it's just sort of like, oh, my God. You know, why, why would you go back? Um, but, yeah, we, we're going to talk about that. We're going to, like you mentioned, we're going to talk about MGM Adventure. Again, for Disney fans, we're going to do things like talk about Pleasure Island, and not just the Pleasure Island at Walt Disney World at Lake Buena Vista, but also the Pleasure Island that was built right outside of Boston, where C.V. Wood, the the master builder of Disneyland, uh, literally walked out the door (laughs) with his Rolodex full of former Disney employees and took them along with him to, to build Disneylands all over the country. But anyway, look for this shortly, folks. Uh, Drew and I will most likely begin working on episode one of this series this weekend. I have to warn you, though, that because of the amount of heavy-duty research involved with this one, we're looking to go the Patreon route with this, and we're hoping that you you folks can be supportive of it. 
But yeah, we should have episode one up and running shortly. And then after that, uh, we're looking at doing stories about Heritage USA. What is it? We got to do we got to do Mars 2021 or whatever that oh, was. God. Nancy and I went to dinner there once. And I, I still you know, wake up <laughs> screaming. Uh, but, but we'll we'll talk about that later. So uh, speaking of, of waking up screaming, Drew, uh, you know, given that the news we just got about the Mission Impossible movies now being pushed back by by six months, you're okay, right? I'm okay, or, Jim. I'm dealing with it. Um, I'm shocked it's only six months. I'm sh- it should really be a year. Uh, okay. So yeah, I'm. I'm. But they're coming, and we're gonna get okay. them at Thanksgiving. So I think that's a good time for Mission Impossible. Okay, so what's going on with the with the Light Diffuse podcast? Other than those really handsome T shirts, you thinking I'm about getting tempted. one? Yeah, you should I'm get one. Very Jim. tempted. I'm very uh, tempted. Yeah, you can get our T shirts on T Public. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, we've just got a bunch of great guests today. Uh, we are talking to Michael Kaplan, who is the amazing uh, costume designer mm-hmm. for Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol. I mean, this guy has done every single cool movie from Clue to Blade Runner. Never been nominated for an Oscar. Uh, nice. But is one of the coolest guys, so definitely check it out. Okay, okay. And speaking of things, we hope you can check out. Uh, we have the Disney Dish podcast that I do with Len Testa. We have the Looking at Lucasfilm podcast I do with Dan Z. Oh, oh uh, Drew, you'd love this. The Van Eaton Gallery is doing another one of their Disneyland pop culture auctions. Oh, really? Yeah, and what's kind of interesting is they have early, early publicity material for the first Star Wars movie, and it's really fascinating because it's like you are are literally explaining to the world who Obi-Wan Kenobi is – and you know things like these these things these these Ewoks. It's a little teddy bear people who live in the redwoods, and they have some absolutely amazing stuff. They're selling off, for example, a chunk of the Death Star, a piece of the model that was used to actually shoot uh, the original film from '77. But yeah, Dan and I will be talking about that. We also have the marvelous Disney podcast I do with Aaron Adams, the gentleman who edits a lot of the podcasts here. Uh, we have Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse, and of course, I want that with Michelle Valladolid. Um, anyway, folks, uh, if you could do Drew and I a favor and head over to iTunes and rate and recommend not only this podcast, Fine Tuning, but also Light the Fuse, uh, that would be very helpful. Also, if you, you want to subscribe over at Bandcamp, also helpful. And just final housekeeping, Drew. Folks, if they're looking for you on social media, where can they find you? Uh, Drew Tailored, T-A-L-O-R-E-D. And Light the Fuse is on all the, the platforms as well. So, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, I'm out okay. there, Jim. All right. Well, again, I always enjoy your Twitter feed. In fact, that's where I actually learned about the, the Lego deal. And, again, you were nice enough to mention that they hope they keep Animal Logic on board to continue the animation. But... Anyway, uh, similarly, we're on Twitter and Instagram is Jim Hill Media and over on Facebook as Jim Hill Media News. Anyway, folks, that's it for today. Uh, But Drew and I will be back with a brand new show where hopefully it won't take us six weeks to mention that, you know, Spies in Disguise is available on (laughs) Blu-ray and DVD. I got to order it right now, Jim. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) Headed there right now. (laughs)